Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Money Bus Sport Review. Today's podcast is entitled Kevin Keegan, Football's Popularist Demagogue. And that's a, a very provocative headline. And what I mean by that is that Kevin, the rise of Keeganism in the 90s is very much sort of a Cassandra-esque anticipation of what the Premier League becomes. So to explain it, that Keegan's career ends in the mid '80s, but there's a there's a gap. There's about a six to eight year gap before he gets into frontline management, and that's sort of 1992 with Newcastle. By 1992, there's been a whole s- massive sea change. You've now got the Premier League. You've got all-seater stadiums. You've got Sky. You've got the explosion in sort of coverage, and really what the, the rise of the middle-class football fan. And what that leaves is a sort of a power vacuum within management. So you've really got, sort of, on one side, you've got the, the George Grahams, you know, Kenny Dalglish when he returns eventually to Blackburn, when he goes to Blackburn even. You've got Sir Alex Ferguson, sort of traditional Scottish managers, but they, they've not got this huge media profile. And you've got people like, you know, Jerry Francis, Roy Evans. They're, they're kind of football lifers, but they're not particularly charismatic or well-known to the wider populace. Probably the closest thing I can think of off the top of my head would have been sort of Big Ron Atkinson. But even he, by the 90s, he's managing Villa, Coventry, Nottingham Forest. They're not huge clubs. And as a result, what Kevin Keegan feels is that he is that name brand. He's famous ex-player. He's been a pundit. He's done lots of you know the elements of marketing. So he is known to the wider audience of people, and he joins Newcastle. So they've got you know Sir John Hall. They redevelop St James's Park. You know the the area is regenerating. You know they they exemplify in a sense the you know the things can only get better. Nineties really. And they also show the wider point of commercialism. In other words, Newcastle as a football, United as a football club, are one of the first whose fan base really jumps onto the sort of replica football shirts. You know, where you've got the vast majority of the stadium have the shirt, home and away. And what that leads to is, is that you have to understand the psychology behind Keeganism. In other words... Part of his career is he's got this very interesting legacy. In other words, some of his best years were spent in Germany playing for Hamburg. And as a result, in the early 80s, there wasn't the sort of media coverage and television. We didn't see him really when he was playing for Hamburg, you know, when he was winning, you know, player of the year, you know, awards. So we didn't see it. And really, you know, before he played for Hamburg, he'd played for Liverpool. But as a result, his legacy there has sort of become crowded out. You know, you've got Dalglish, because in the end, Dalglish becomes the player manager. You know, and he has a huge amount of success. You've got Sunesh, you've got Rush, Barnes, Hansen. All of these people have, you know, end up with... So that there's no real room for Kevin Keegan. He's just part of an overall legacy of just you know, constant success from, you know, sort of the mid-60s to the, you know, the early 90s. You know, his international career, he's part of that sort of lost generation of the 1970s. In other words, he was obviously too young for the, the late 60s and the World Cup. You know, 
but was too old by the time you get you know to Euro eighty four, World Cup eighty six, when England start to rise again, which then sort of leads to Italia ninety when they get to the semi finals. So he misses that. In other words, his best shot was Spain eighty two, but he 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 turns up injured, and there's a part of him as almost Kevin Keegan the outsider. In other words, you know, he's the one that moves abroad. He makes some very canny business decisions. And he comes injured and eventually gets into a car, flies back to Germany and gets some you know, medical treatment that the England doctors don't think that he should get. Comes back and eventually all he can do, he makes this mammoth effort to get fit and eventually all that he can do is come on as a late sub and there's this moment where the, the cross comes in, he gets his head on it and it just goes wide. So he's almost... Heroic, but it falls short. It's almost sort of almost like a martyr, really. That he was the great England player at a time when they just weren't able to get, you know, the rest of the team just wasn't quite good enough to get them to the Euros and to the World Cup. You had to caveat that that was when the Euros and the World Cup were smaller than they are now, so it was actually a lot harder to qualify. But that's you know, so as a result, he's almost. There's, he's very famous, but there, there was no outlet for it. He, he, you know, as part of his personality and his psychology, he needed to be, you know, loved and the main man. You know, which sort of explains why when he leaves Hamburg, he goes to Southampton. And it's a slightly surprising move, because they're not a fashionable club. They're quite small, quite provincial. But as a result, he goes there and he's very important. He's hero-worshipped by the fans. They have some, some great years there. And eventually, as his career winds down, he goes to Newcastle. Now, the point is, why there's this gap between 84, when his sort of career ends at Newcastle, and when he then starts his managerial career, is that, and why it's not Southampton, why it's Newcastle, is that with Southampton, he was part of a successful era, and then, you know, at the end of his career, it then sort of neatly overlaps with the sort of the rise of Letizia, but Southampton couldn't get any bigger. You know, the Dell physically was a very small ground, and obviously once you added in all seater, it was never going to be more than 16,000, 17,000 seats. Whereby, effectively, with Newcastle, what, what he was able to do was is that he goes there and he's loved, hero-worshipped, and... Newcastle are this big club, they have a great history, the ground's quite big, they've got a huge kind of... You know potential. You know St James's Park is right in the middle of Newcastle. You, if they are successful, you can add twenty thousand to the gate, which I think really appeals to Kevin Keegan because he never got that national adulation that Gaza had in ninety or that Lineker had over his career. You know, he was part of the Malays, you know, decline years, and what Newcastle really offers when he becomes manager is that they've got an owner that's willing to put money into it. In other words, if you look at the sort of Kevin Keegan, all of his managerial jobs, they all are just remarkably similar. In other words, he joins Newcastle, they have an owner that's going to put a huge amount of money, he become, comes in as a messiah, so in other words, he ended his career there, he's now back to save them from relegation and take them to the promised land, he's given a large amount of money, and he pushes them straight there. You know, completely, you know almost instantaneous success so eventually he leaves Newcastle goes to Fulham and there is a very similar you know club that have had you know a grand history but have been in long-term malaise there was just slowly but surely getting out of it you know under Mickey Adams but then you know they, they're taken over Mohamed Al-Fayed comes in 
and Kevin Keegan's there. They poured a huge amount of money, and it's a project. And, you know, he then takes them, you know, pushes them on the path to where they end up in the Premier League. Similar thing with Man City. You know, they're moving from main... They've been relegated from the Premier League. They've been out of the Premier League for a few years. They went all the way down to the second division. You know, and... He then comes back in record number of points, gets a load of experienced players in, takes them back into the Premier League. They're just about to move from Main Road to the city of Manchester Stadium. So, at every single stage along the line, there's always a new owner, though. There's money, and there's a project. The fans are just delighted, because a lot of those clubs had been, for an extended period of time, not successful. And he adds a bit of glamour and the idea, you know, in terms of Man City, their fans, you know, almost harking back to the 70s when they played beautifully attractive football and, you know, almost a little bit dangerous in that sense. And he can bring that. Even to an extent, sort of the England job, they're just about to move out of Wembley and go to New Wembley. And he's, and so as a result, there's always, he always has to come in on a, almost like a white charge. He always has to be, you know, the Messiah coming in. And it just, it, it's his very home political antennae. In other words, he's always aware that the only way that Keeganism works is if those bits and pieces are already there. In other words, you have to have the history. You have to have the ownership, the stadium and all the rest of it, which you wouldn't have got had you started your manager career in the 80s. So really, going back to Newcastle, part of the reason why he was so loved is that there was... Newcastle would, you know, been sort of an up-and-down club, but there was a lack of glamour, really. The closest they think they had to glamour was really Waddle and Gazza, but both of them went down south, and whose careers then kicked off from there, and neither of them, you know, ever returned. You could probably say Peter Beardsley returned, but that's slightly different. So in other words, for them, there was no sort of emotionally satisfying denouement, whereby what Keegan offered, because he'd had that success as a player and then come back, is that it was great. It was the feeling that someone was coming back and that this was going to be the moment. And this is where it, it gets quite interesting. And this is where, effectively, Keegan is the accidental visionary in the creation of what we would now call the modern Premier League. In other words the decline of the importance of the cup competitions. You know, mid-season signings that, you know, almost media and hype-related. Like, the classic example is Tino Espria. You know, the rise of the, the, the media manager. In other words, someone that, you know, Sky Sports and the newspapers jump on top of. And the, the, instead of the, the, the manager just giving a post-match interview, it becomes a, a hype-driven thing. In other words, you get Keegan versus Ferguson. And, you know, one of the things that Kevin... Probably one of the most underrated things of, of Kevin Keegan's, you know, spell at Newcastle is the idea of building a fan base outside of your local catchment area. Because Newcastle are so popular. They're on TV a lot. Kevin Keegan's well-known. It's that you have a whole bunch of people that become Newcastle fans almost off the back of the, the, sort of the Keegan hype thing. In other words, Manchester United have always had a, a wide supporter base in like Ireland, across the world, and London, other areas of the country. Newcastle had never really had that until, you know, you know, until you had the Keegan years. Whereby now, you know, one of the, the key elements of Man City and Chelsea in their rise has been to basically build them club 
as not just national but international clubs. One of Keegan's main things is he he's one of the first managers to really popularise spending large amounts of money on foreign signings. There's a lack of long-term planning. In other words, it's all here and now, which is really what the modern Premier League is. You get managers don't have years and years that they did have in the 90s to build a club. It is instantaneous results. You know, one of the things that's fascinating about the, the Keegan Newcastle years is that they don't win anything. But at the same time, is that there's almost an importance of style over the actual end results. There's a, you, know, you have the rich owners, the, the desire for instantaneous results, the, sort of the narrative structure of that. You know, the idea that Keegan turns up, the manager can essentially do, perform miracles. In other words, turn Newcastle under, who'd spent a decent part of the 80s in the second division, who you know, weren't a founding member of the Premier League, could rise up through the divisions, and then within two or three years of being in the Premier League, start challenging Manchester United for the league title. If you look at it, if you compare it to, let's say, Dalgleish at, New at um, Blackburn, one of the interesting things is, that although there's similarities, in other words, Blackburn weren't a particularly fashionable side, weren't even particularly successful in the 1980s, is that when Jack Walker turns up and pumps in all of that money, is that it still, and gets Dalgleish, who's you know, a very famous manager, name brand manager, is it that it's still broadly traditional? Look at the players he signs, you know, Jason Wilcox, Stuart Ripley, Chris Sutton, Tim Flowers, Alan Shearer. There's a huge amount of money, but it's all broadly English. You know, it's well-developed, it's well developed, it's designed, and then it leads to 94-95 when they win the title. It's not particularly sustainable, but the idea was it was planned as if it was going to be sustainable. The problem is, is that, you know, once Dow Gleish leaves, there's a, you know, the quality of the managing goes down rapidly they lose a couple of players and eventually the the overall infrastructure of the club isn't large enough to sustain a long-term challenge to Manchester United which Newcastle do have that under Keegan How eventually Keeganism does decline but it's one of the most fascinating elements is that when it declines and when he leaves he's replaced by Dalgleish which is a fascinating point because in the end Dalgleish is in decline, and so are Newcastle. So one of the first things that... The only way that you can keep up the mystique of Keeganism, it becomes repurposed in cup runs, whereby Kevin Keegan was entirely... And I'm going to end, use this phrase, brand Keegan, because that's really what his managerial style and football is. It's a brand that's entirely personality-driven. It is short-term. And so, for him, Keeganism and brand Keegan, it's all about the league title and nothing else. Whereby you think, well, the fan base is desperate for trophies, haven't really won anything since it was 69, 71. That doesn't really matter to Keegan. What matters is he understands that what you know the real big prize is the Premier League and nothing else will, will match that. And that the second that they sort of decline, and really Newcastle decline as Arsenal rise, because Arsenal have... You know, a more long-term stretch. They end up with Arsene Wenger. They've got the players, the resource, you know, the 
the base that's there that allows them to compete for a longer period of time than Newcastle. Part of what Keegan does is it's always short term. It can't last forever. That's where the sort of demagogue pop popularism comes from. In other words, it will always end in tears. You will always end up with a hangover if Kevin Keegan is your manager. It will end badly. And one of the only ways that Dow Leash can really maintain the mystique of Keeganism is these cut runs. So they get to the 1998 FA Cup final, they get to the 99 Cup final. They have some success in Europe. I mean, one the, the ultimate Newcastle Kevin Keegan performance, the irony is it doesn't happen when Kevin Keegan's in charge. It's the Champions League when they beat Barcelona at home 3-2 with Tino Espria getting a hat-trick. Really, what it what you have to... When understanding sort of Keegan as the accidental visionary, it's always... It's interlinked intrinsically with Brand Keegan. In other words, there's an almost an element of Cassandra about Keeganism. It basically sees and almost in a way predicts the future of the Premier League, but there isn't any way of Keeganism itself either fixing it, solving it, or improving upon it. In the end, the whole point of Keeganism it is short-term, it's popularist, and it's always going to eventually fail because there's nothing at the heart of it all it is is Kevin Keegan eventually when he leaves Newcastle start to decline eventually you know he never stays more than sort of three or four years at a place because there is no long-term underpinnings to it in other words all he can do really is turn up spend the money get some you know experienced players in play this style of football and effectively sort of hope for the best the classic example is of the accidental visionary Keegan is when he recognises that the reserve team play at St James's Park and that all, because of all of the games on the pitch, it's damaging the pitch. And as a result, he just decides to get rid of the entire reserve team structure and really limits the, the capacity of the youth system. Because really what it's accepting is, is that even in the short term, Man United, they can't compare with the Manchester United youth system, the one that produces the class of 92. So they can't do it. They, you know, Manchester United are a bigger club with a better infrastructure. So basically, the short-term part of Keegan's thing is, I just want you to win the league now. So as a result, you know, really the reserve team doesn't, it's inefficient from a strategic standpoint. In other words, the players that, the youth team players, the reserve team players playing in there aren't really good enough to get into my first team, which is going toe-to-toe with Manchester United. But I'll just get rid of it. But in the end, the wider point is, is that that damages the long-term club because the youth system goes into decline. They lose a couple of very talented players. Classic example is Darren Huckabee, who gets sold and goes on has quite a good career at Coventry, where basically if he'd been at Newcastle, he may well have been at someone they could have used off the bench. He would have been, you know, his pace and the differentiation because they end up with a fairly veteran strikers. They end up with, you know, Les Ferdinand and Alan Shearer eventually. And, you know, they're not the paciest of players and he could have added something to it whereby the money that they got from selling him was about a million pounds, which wasn't enough really to replace what Huckabee did or the potential of the youth system in the longer term to build Newcastle United up so that while they may not compete for Manchester United you know, in the youth team now, in 10 years they potentially could have done. But that's the problem. In other words, there's no alternative plan and that's where Keeganism fails. In other words, they lose to the better organised manager. 
but the only way that he can really fix it instead of well oh we don't win the league title you know we blow the 12 point gap in you know 95-96 I'll buy Alan Shearer but that's really foreseeing short-term buys unsustainable spending in other words, Newcastle can't possibly, in the long term, keep spending £15 million whenever they need a, a player. So really, they're just trying to sort of do the end around. In other words, they're, they're almost basically ceding the war to United, but hoping they can win a couple of battles in the interim. It's one thing for Kevin Keegan as you know, the accidental visionary to basically be able to foresee a world in which the Premier League managers don't have time to build the wider infrastructure of a club that you would have done maybe in the early 90s or the 1980s. The point is is that actually Bran Keegan did have that time. You know, he was worshipped on Tyneside. You know, the ownership wanted him to stay. The fans, the players wanted him to stay. But in the end the whole point of Kevin Keegan from a sort of psychological basis is that the emotion ends up clouding everything. You know, he always goes for the tearful, you know, shock, resignation. Because really, in the end, the choices are either he can basically develop Keeganism into something that is long-term or change his managerial structure and the ways he does things. But he doesn't want to do that. In the end, it's actually just better to just quit and then start again somewhere else with a similar basis. In other words, Keegan is only a one-act play. It's just the same act over and over again without any sort of development or growth. I think it's important also to really expand on what I mean by brand Keegan. I think as an ideology and as a style of football, it's that Keegan's teams are almost a pure distillation of Keegan the player. And it's a form of, sort of self-mythologising. Because basically the generations that grew up on Newcastle United football in the 90s didn't, wouldn't have seen Kevin Keegan play. There wasn't the same amount of coverage or highlights that, that were around. In other words, you just knew that he played for Liverpool, you knew he played for Hamburg, you knew he'd had some success, but... There was no. You can basically not have a very good idea of what Kevin Keegan liked as a player. That he was a sort of midfielder, striker. It, and so as a result, we've built our understanding of Kevin Keegan on the way how his teams play. So as a result, you know the fact that it's this free flowing, all out attack, you know, very romantic style of play, has then built into has then kept alive the, the flame of Keegan as this great player. In other words, we don't know anything more about his playing career, but we just basically now managed to fuse the Keegan as a player, Keegan as the manager, and what he created into one kind of brand. It's almost a, one of the sort of key questions is why does he go back to Newcastle a second time? In other words, you know, he leaves Man City basically saying, "I just don't want to be," you know, "I basically want to retire from being a football manager." And for two, three years, he's you know. On the outskirts, but sometimes does a little bit of punditry, but not a huge amount. He's not a day-to-day presence in the Premier League in any way, shape or form. But then he returns to Newcastle when Mike Ashley basically gives him this you know, second chance. And he sort of, he comes out quite honestly and says, well, I haven't watched much football. So in other words, he's almost in a way admitting that you know, he's not hasn't come up with a, a new idea in the intervening time period. It really is just a retreat. But in a way, it's almost indoctrinating a fresh generation of people to the 
you know, power of Keeganism. In other words, mo- a lot of the younger fans would be essentially just too young to remember what the early 90s was like when they were, had all of that success. But they get indoctrinated into the power of it because you know, he's welcomed to Newcastle as a you know, returning hero. When really, as a manager, he hasn't had a tremendously large amount of success and there's really no reason to suggest that he's going to be able to take the glory days back. But it's that power that you know of hope that he gives, and that people immediately jump up onto it. You know, part of the reason why you know his success as a brand is that it taps into the fans' own deep-seated beliefs. So with Newcastle, through a generation of the city led by local men, so you've got Sir John Hall, you end up with Shearer coming back, Beardsley coming back, Keegan coming back. You know, they venerate the number nine. So all throughout. You know Keegan's different spells at Newcastle. You've got the first to when they've cut up and coming. They spend a good amount of money on Andy Cole. They break the world transfer record for Alan Shearer. They have Mark Viduka on his last, and he spends some. You know, it's all about building the excitement up very quickly. You know, we talked about you know with Fulham and and even with England. The idea is is that he was playing into the idea that a traditional England great returning to lead the national team to glory. That's something that people want to happen. They wanted an ex-famous ex-England player to come back and bring back the glory days. Now, he's got that you know, fine political antenna. He understands that, you know, where, you know, how important Newcastle United in terms of returning messiahs. I think one of the the interesting things is understanding really what the 95-96 season is. It it becomes really a monument to Keegan, is that you've got no football team that I can really think of that is so identified by the style... (coughs) So... And so there's no team that I can, you know, there's some people that talk about sort of Marcelo Biasla, but I, I don't think it's quite the same level of that even now. I think if you asked a cross section of football fans, what is, you know, Kevin Keegan and Newcastle, they'd be able to t- tell you in you know, sort of vivid detail, you know, oh, well, it's the wingers, it's the, you know, the, the defence w- was quite weak, but they always had a couple of ball playing centre halves, you know, like a Philippe Albert, like the classic ones when Philippe Albert just sort of runs up from defence and just casually chips Peter Schmeichel. You've got when Newcastle beat United 5 0, you've got the powerful strikers, you've got Ferdinand and Shearer, you've got Andy Cole, and you know, there's a sense that. It's always more. It's so big. It's like the, even with Andy Cole, the idea is that they not just they, they spend a huge amount of money on Andy Cole. They bring in Peter Beardsley, show that Andy Cole just doesn't score twenty goals a season that he can get thirty. It's that kind of, and it it crystallizes in the memory. You know, the the one of the greatest games in Premier League history, the Liverpool four Newcastle three, and you've also got the you know the Ferguson and Keegan. You know, mind games. I just love it if we beat them. And it's... I suppose... If you compare that team, the 95-96 Newcastle team, to the 94-95 Blackburn team, it's fascinating. It's that really the 94-95 Blackburn team, you know, 
went toe-to-toe with a great Manchester United team out and won the league on the final game of the season in very thrilling, you know, it was probably the first example that would eventually turn into like title Sunday or survival Sunday, that kind of concept. It was the first time that that really happened in the you know, Premier League era. And yet that team has been really forgotten to history whereby the Newcastle team and Keeganism has in fact somehow lives on in, in memory and in culture in a way that the, the Blackburn team win the league, the Newcastle team blow it, but the Newcastle team are remembered by history in a much more positive way. In other words, we all can talk about, you know, Ferdinand, Tino Espria, you know, Ginola, all the rest of it, in a way we don't really talk about, you know, Sutton, we don't really talk about Colin Hendry, anything like, you know, Tim Flowers. It wasn't, it's that in the end they've stuck more into the, you know, popular, you know, football fans' imagination. In other words, there's something sort of romantic about Keegan slumped on the advertising hoarding as Collymore gets the the fourth goal. Is that in some way, shape or form, because they don't beat Manchester United, because in the end, you know, Ferguson does it again, is that it's is that it fits the, the narrative construct of what Premier League football has become. In other words, you, you get Oh, well, a Mourinho team always wins in the second or third year and then it goes horribly wrong. Or the sense that, you know, Rafa Benitez ends up sort of you know, breaking down against Ferguson, goes into the press conference with the written list of complaints and all the rest of it, is that Keegan was able to tap into that, the entertainment side of things, in a way that Dalglish and Blackburn weren't able to. And that's interesting. And... I think in the end that kind of defeat to Ferguson and the psychological contract it it leads to I think what the most interesting part of you know Keeganism is is that how he does as England manager in other words it's slightly different to all of the other you know, club situations there's some similarities in terms of you know the new stadium and the fact that the the public as a whole really got behind you know Kevin Keegan and as a result the newspapers did and I suppose the fascinating thing is is that what people really wanted from Kevin Keegan as an international manager in terms of the thrilling kind of Newcastle football isn't really what he ended up producing. And I've always seen it, it was more that part of the reason that he wanted to be seen almost like a good manager in the traditional sense. Someone who could come up with a tactical plan. And that it wasn't all just some, you know, kind of gung-ho football with a load of money, you know, at the heart of it. And in a way, that's almost, you know, effectively you're trying to come... The antithesis of, of Reckless Keegan. However, in the end, what that created was is that his England teams didn't stand for anything. They weren't particularly young. In other words, he does... I've talked about his, you know, sort of political skills in terms of being able to... You know, get the fan base right behind him. The idea that when Kevin Keegan turns up, it is on a white charger, and that the positivity then just explodes from that. And yet, he doesn't. When he's in the manager, he isn't able to use that. I mean, part of the reason is he's not able to recognize the resource that he has. So really, the spine of the team he has going into Euro two thousand. Well, you've got Sol Campbell, Beckham, Neville, Owen, Skulls. That's five or six brilliant players, all in the you know the middle of their career. They've all had fantastic success at club level, and you've got a whole 
bunch of young players coming through. So you've got Ferdinand, Terry, Gerard, Lampard, Gareth Barry. And yet, the funny thing is, is that he ends up really over-reliant on Seaman, Tony Adams, Shearer, Ince, Dennis Wise even. And yet, they, they didn't act, they didn't have the tactical sense of uh, an ageing team that's very experienced. You know, effectively what, what became the 2004 Euros Greece team. You know, that kind of style. He, he doesn't go that far. But then he doesn't go all out in terms of saying, OK, well, I'll get rid of Adams. I'll, you know, get rid of Ince. And I'll bring in all these young players and really say to the wider public, look, we're going in with this young team. We're going to play this fantastic brand of football. And we could get knocked out. We're in a tough group in terms of Portugal, Germany, Romania. However, in the longer term, this is leading to the bright, sunny upland of we're going to have a great team for the World Cup. And they're going to be young by the time they've developed. you know. And that this is basically a free shot. And that you have to believe and trust in me. And by the time you know, you're know you at Wembley, you'll have this golden generation. He doesn't see that. He doesn't have the, the imagination to do that or even the, the nerve to do it. Or he doesn't go the other side of it and say, actually, we've got these young players. They will come through eventually. This is the last chance for all of the great players from the you know, 96, 98 teams to have one last go at it. We're going to play in a slightly different manner. We're going to have a couple of young players with a bit of pace to sort of counteract their, you know, obviously lack of you know, speed and stamina. But they've got all of this experience. And in the end, that means that because we've got this really tough group in, you know, group of death with a great Portugal team, with the, the Germans who are, you know, usually very good, and an experienced Romanian team, a lot of them who had played in the Premier League and so would understand our style of football. It's neither one or the other. So in the end, his team nearly gets to the quarterfinal, but in the end, they lose, they, they give away a last-minute penalty and it's Phil Neville. So one of the younger players, but he's the one younger player that ends up not, he's not an international left back. He does get to 50 caps, but it's probably, I'd like to call it the most gruel-like 50 caps. He doesn't do anything at international level other than that awful tackle. He sort of can play a bit of midfield, he can play a bit of fullback, but really that should have been someone like a Gareth Barry who had more talent, who could have, you know, had an impact and ended up... In other words, we gave Gareth Barry 10 caps at the end of his career that he probably didn't deserve, and we probably should have given him 20 caps earlier when he was younger. And that's one of the, the sort of sad elements to it. It's a bit like when he joins Man City. There's always an element in my mind that when Keegan goes there, it's almost as a way that he can basically beat Ferguson in the battle rather than the war. In other words... Eventually, his Man City team will play Man United. If you spend three or four years there, at home, you're likely to get at least one result. And that's kind of a symbolic, ah, I've beaten Ferguson. In the same way that even his failure at England, it was like, well, I failed, you know, doing something traditional. I didn't go all out. Whereby, I think, had he done that, it's like, I think the best ten minutes of you know, Kevin Keegan's England managers was that first game against Portugal, where they go 2-0 up, and they just run straight through the middle of the, the Portuguese team, but in the end, it's a, it's almost, it, it can't last. There's no underlying tactical revolution to it. So as a result, it doesn't, it eventually, the great Portugal team of, you know, Luis Figo, eventually doesn't because they're just playing a 
basic 442 with with no frills with no sort of wider intelligence to it in other words what keegan should have done if he was going to be a decent england manager would be to have developed something. He could have been one of the people that started Gen Gen pressing if he decided to go with all of those young players and said, look, you probably don't have the positional sense to do this. However, if you press them high up the field with all of the energy and with some of the experience that you've got in people like Campbell, Seaman, Neville, Scholes, you can get away with it. And even if they'd failed, they'd at least failed with some positives that could have then been built into the next great England team. But in the end, it, it doesn't... It becomes n- a nothing. And as a result, when you look at the... In other, it becomes very unsatisfying. In other words, what we wanted Kevin Keegan to do was to just go all out for it. Because even if it failed, at least we would have enjoyed the ride. Whereby the England team under Kevin Keegan never really got going. And it was quite depressing and... In the end, it fed into the, what the FA's own view of it was that, oh, well, our players are talent, are deficient, and they're just not good enough, when really it was the management that was put in place. I mean, this is what you have to get from the, sort of the dangers of Keeganism. This is where my conclusion comes from, is that the classic example is the Romania World Cup game in 1998. Kevin Keegan is the colour analyst with the, with the commentator. And it's just gone to, I think it was one all. And Keegan comes out with, there's only one team that's going to win it from here. You know, basically saying that England are going to, you know, guaranteeing it, nailing his, you know, colours to the mark, England are going to win. And he's completely wrong. Graham Lasso makes an error. David Seaman makes an error. And it goes to, you know, and Romania win the game. But whereby that could have been... You know, the catalyst for him never being made England manager because it, he, the nation as a whole were watching that, listening to that, and heard him say that, and he was massively wrong. And that, that was really a sign of you know, where he wouldn't make a great international manager, that it's you know, too emotional, that there wasn't enough underpinning, tactical underpinning to it. But what Keegan's brilliance in terms of his understanding of politics and understanding of emotion, his popularism, is that he understood that that's exactly what the man on the street felt and wanted. He, they wanted England to go on and win that game. And they, the fact that Kevin Keegan, who was this great player and he had this success, relatively successful management career, was saying it, that's it. That's exactly what we wanted, even if it was completely wrong. And as a result, it's bizarre that in less, you know, basically a year later, there's a, a groundswell of popular support from the public for him to be England manager. Because really what those people were seduced by was the potential of Keeganism. There's abundant evidence when he was made England manager that he wasn't... It was unlikely that it was going to work out. But it was that hope that got him to be England manager. And that's his danger. We wanted to believe. In other words, Newcastle fans wanted to believe. And as the problem is, is that you have all of this great kind of success and positivity, but there's nothing to it. <laughs> eventually it runs out he will basically flame out i mean it's the classic example is you know the last game at wembley and he ends up overshadowing it you know with this sort of very theatrical you know resignation in in the you know the underbelly of wembley after the game oh i'm not good enough it's like well what has changed that basically at the end of the euros you decide to stay on 
you know, whereby basically a resignation would have been a resignation wouldn't have been a surprise. And yet he ends up having to go out in an even more spectacular way, overshadowing the last game at the old Wembley. So really to, to conclude this, a lot of the positives that you get in the Premier League in terms of you know the excitement, you know, the pace of the football, you know, foreign players, the passion that's involved, and a lot of that is to really do with Keeganism. And that's where there's positives to it. But a lot of the, the negatives also come from it. You know, the the short termism, the idea that there's messiahs that will come out and that managers can turn things around instantaneously and that you can just spend huge amounts of money and work it all out. You can buy five or six strikers and it will somehow all work itself out. And that's the sort of legacy of him. So what we as fans really need to learn from Keegan is that it is to learn the right lessons. So in other words, that you know, youth development is important. So if, you, if we look at, you know, recently you've had the success of the under-17s, the under-20s, the under-21s, and just how great that was to have young players from English academies doing well on the, on the global stage and playing a great brand of football to do so. And that actually that long-termism and the, the changes of culture that the FA need to do in terms of how they use their resource at international level and how much and sort of their choices and management and how we and how we interact with our clubs and whether you know what the positives or the negatives of it in other words i love a lot of things about the premier league that kevin keegan has contributed to however what do you want the premier league to stand for do you want it to be just out and out Keeganism, <laughs> or do you actually think, well, we could lose some of the more exciting bits of it? So, in other words, the constant, you know, media hype, the constant need to buy new players, and actually maybe take a step back from it. So it's not quite as exciting, but in the longer term, you may keep your manager for longer. You know, younger players might come through, and as a result, you might feel that your club is more linked to you because instead of it just being you know a bunch of foreign players that you've just signed willy-nilly it's actually players that have developed through your club and you know are part you know a part of the foundation and that are really making history with it with each game it, effectively do you want the premier league to be a one-trick pony that keeganism is or do you want it to have be more three-dimensional and as a result, the things that you have to do, maybe you have to sacrifice some of the enjoyment and some of the visceral pleasure of it, but in the longer term, you have a healthier game. Thank you. Mm -hmm.